He's going to bless your heart today with a song we've been singing for four generations. Um, and may, may it prepare your heart for the word. I think most of you will know this, at least your older ones. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Lean into this.
Now, Lord, will you let the words of a 100-year-old song open our hearts to the incorruptible seed of your word. And may this not be just a moment of exchange of information, but a time where your word transforms us, a moment of transformation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn with me to 1 Timothy today, chapter 6. It's where we were at the end of last week and will be today and next week. Um, I just want you to, I want us all to have our hearts changed by what Paul says here. I'm going to meet you there in just a moment. Last week I introduced you to a word that is the centerpiece of what we're talking about here in 1 Timothy 6. That word came to, it's an unusual word, that came to national prominence in 2013 because of a court case in Texas that was carried on the national news. And this is the word and a couple of the definitions, the nuances it has taken on. Affluenza is the word. Definition number one, a pseudo-psychological condition defined as the inability of an individual to understand the consequences of their action because of their social status or economic privilege. And for example, Ethan Couch was the young man at the center of that court case His lawyers argued for a more lenient case. He came from a wealthy family, and they said because he had affluenza. That's the reason he did what he did. And they actually argued successfully on the basis of him having affluenza. Now, that's very probably doesn't apply to most of us, but the second definition does apply to most of us. A social condition that arises from the desire to be more wealthy or successful. Kind of in a basic way, affluenza is the want or the desire for more. And in that sense, most of us are infected with affluenza. And the most dangerous part of it is that none of us are willing to admit that we have it. And if you don't admit it or you're not aware of it, that you have the disease, you'll never take the medicine to get cured of it. And there is medicine. There is an antidote for affluenza clearly marked out for us in Scripture. So once we come to an awareness that we have the spiritual disease and we're willing to apply the scripture's cure, our hearts can be healed of affluenza. I lost my naivety about social standing, economic class, all of that early on in my junior high experience. Clay was a year older than me and he and I had started connecting at school, so I invited him over one weekend to stay the weekend Weekend came and went. Clay stayed, went home. Monday morning rolled around. We went to school in the cafeteria that day at lunch. Clay was sitting with some of his more affluent friends that he normally hung around. And I started hearing the rumors and the chatter out of that lunchtime that Clay and his friends were talking about how poor my family was. And needless to say, Clay and I never really hung out anymore. And that was more of his choice than it was mine. It, it seemed like the old farmhouse on the outskirts of town that I grew up in didn't measure up to Clay's sprawling home in a more affluent area. And for economic reasons, I'm just assuming that for economic reasons, I didn't fit with Clay's tribe. But here's the irony. Every day when I would ride the rural school bus to and from school on our rural route, we would pass this cluster of homes, really shacks, that were built dangerously close to the road. And my family felt like that group of families that lived in those homes were poor. And I remember watching kids from that stop get on the bus feeling guilty because of all the things I had compared to all the things they didn't have. Compared to them, I was the rich one. 
And therein lies the problem. Rich is a moving target. We're always comparing ourselves to people that are better off than us. And for that reason, it's always the other people that are rich. And for that reason, when we come across passages in the Bible like 1 Timothy chapter 6 where the writer of Scripture is addressing affluent people and telling them how to manage their affluence in a God-honoring way, we don't pay any attention to those verses. We move on because we assume they don't apply to us because we never feel rich or we never see ourselves as affluent. That's why I spent all of last week trying to convince us that we are haves rather than have-nots. And I'm not going to go back over everything I said last week, but before we start walking through verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6, let me do a little more convincing. I want to show you some of the symptoms of affluenza, all right? Symptom number one, people with affluenza tend to live in denial. Tall people admit they're tall, short people admit they're short, and messy people are really good at admitting they're messy. Their cars are messy, their rooms are messy, their life is a mess, and they're as happy as can be that they are messy people. Introverts don't mind telling you they're introverts, and extroverts cannot wait to tell you how extroverted they are. But when it comes to being affluent, most people won't admit they are. They live in denial. And this is a big deal in our personal fight against affluenza. Remember the Gallup survey I mentioned last week that every group that was surveyed said that in order to be affluent, you had to make two times whatever they made. So when they interviewed people that made 30,000 a year, they said people that made 60,000 a year were rich. When they interviewed people that made 50,000, they said people that made 100,000 were rich. And they followed that all the way up to people who made two and a half or had two and a half million dollars in assets. And they asked them, what does it take to be wealthy? And they said, well, you got to have five million dollars in assets in order to be wealthy. I mean, why is that? Why does it keep going up? No matter who has what, they always think it's the other person that's wealthy because people that have affluenza live in denial. Nobody's rich, but everybody knows somebody who is. And that's kind of how this thing works. There's this magic line out there somewhere, and when you cross that line, you'll be rich. It's just none of us ever know when we cross that line, and that's the problem. Last week, I showed you the results of a study that said if you make $37,000 a year, you're in the top 4% of wage earners in the entire world. There's all kinds of studies like that. And another study said that if your household makes $45,000 combined, household income of $45,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of wage-earning households in the world. So if your household income is $45,000 a year, you're wealthier than 99% of the almost 8 billion other people in the world, which means we're haves instead of have-nots. But because we use illogical comparisons and we're always comparing up, we never feel rich, and then we end up being blinded to our own affluenza. Here's the second symptom of affluenza. People with affluenza are plagued with discontentment. The accumulation of stuff is kind of like an appetite. And you know this, appetites are never fully or finally satisfied. They temporarily get satisfied, then you get hungry again. And if you feed an appetite, it grows. If you starve an appetite, it shrinks. And here's why that's important. When affluent people get more stuff, what do you think happens to their appetite for stuff? It grows. The more they have, they end up wanting more stuff. 
That's the way this kind of works in all of us. And we have a word for this, this, this desire for more stuff, this appetite that keeps growing. Our culture actually has a word for this. We call it an upgrade. So, okay. So when you have something that works perfectly and you go get another one that's basically just like it, but just a little bit newer, that's an upgrade. And that's what rich people do. They have enough extra money that they can afford to upgrade. For example, I know nobody in this room has ever heard of doing this, but let me just give you an example. They'll drive their car that works perfectly onto a dealership lot and they'll take their car and a boatload of more money and they'll leave the money and the car with the dealer and they'll drive off in another car that does basically the same thing as the car they just left with the dealer. Who does that? Rich people do. They have stuff that works, but they have the ability to upgrade. Or maybe you've heard of this. People go into a kitchen, a kitchen that has countertops, a refrigerator, a microwave, and an oven, and they rip it all out. And they go in and they replace it with countertops, a microwave, a refrigerator, and an oven. It's crazy, right? It's called an upgrade. The letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy goes right to the heart of the issue for people that struggle with affluenza. So I want us to lean in today to verse 17. We're going to pick verse 18 apart next week. But if we're going to beat affluenza, we have to start first by admitting that we are affluent by global standards. And then we have to ask the question, okay, so if, I'm going to, if I recognize I am blessed, affluent, God's been really good to me. How do I handle those blessings, that affluence, in a way that honors God? And Paul tells us how. 1 Timothy 6, 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. It's the first thing he says. So you got Paul, the older, wiser man who is guiding this young pastor, and he's saying to this young pastor, Timothy, tell the affluent people in your congregation, command them not to be arrogant. Don't miss Paul's words of wisdom in this instruction. He's saying, if you ever become affluent, your inclination is going to lean toward arrogance. Just to prove what Paul's saying, let me give you a statement that we've all said or heard said a hundred different times in different ways in our lives, all right? We, we say things like this, he or she is worth a ton of money, but you would never know it. I mean, why do we say that? They're worth a ton of money, but you would never know it because people who are rich tend to wear it. They tend to carry it. They want you to know it because affluence has the tendency to make people arrogant. So when someone is rich and they don't gravitate toward arrogance, it's unusual to us. When we see them having the assets and the wealth and we say, man, these people have a ton of money, but you would never know it. It just says it's unusual because we expect affluence to make people lean to the arrogant side. So Paul is saying, look, if you're lucky enough or you worked hard enough or you're smart enough or you're blessed enough, however you think you got there, if you've crossed that imaginary line where you have more stuff than most people, don't let it go to your head. And the next thing Paul says is even more to the heart of the issue. This is powerful. Look at this. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, 
which is so uncertain. This is huge. Listen, Paul is saying when you start to acquire more things, you get more money, you get the raise, you get the promotion, you get the bonus, and all of a sudden things start looking good for you for the long term, if you're not careful, something will start to happen with your hope. You won't see it coming. It's not a decision that you intentionally made, but as you acquire more stuff and you accumulate more, as your affluence grows, if you don't guard it, your hope will start to migrate. Your hope will move toward the security and trust being placed in your assets instead of being placed in God. Paul is telling Timothy, warn the affluent people in your church. Tell them to guard their hope. Don't let their hope migrate. Don't let their hope get attached to or associated with or wrap around their financial status. It's an incredibly dangerous thing to let happen because riches are so frail, so uncertain. They can be here today and gone tomorrow. Listen to the wisdom of Proverbs 18 verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong fortress. The godly run to him and are safe. We know that one, but here's verse 11. The rich think of their wealth as a strong defense and they imagine it to be a high wall of safety. The wisdom here is that wealth is an imaginary, unreliable, and uncertain mirage of security for people that have affluenza. So don't let your hope migrate from the name of the Lord to the uncertain mirage of wealth. Almost nobody listening to me right now would consider themselves wealthy or affluent. But by global standards, just about every one of us are. And in one way or another, many of us have let our hearts start migrating toward the security that money can give us or the insecurity we feel when we don't have enough of it. We just, we don't see it happening. We don't realize when it happens, it just happens. It's the natural gravitation of hearts in our culture. Paul goes on to say, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Here's why that's amazing. People are always critical when preachers talk about money. And I can't answer for every preacher. I don't know the motive of every preacher out there, but I can tell you why I talk about it. Teach on generosity and stewardship because Jesus did a lot. In fact, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus references money and our view toward money more than he does heaven and hell combined. Money was the centerpiece of so many of his teachings, so many of his parables. So why is our perspective as his followers on money so important to him? Because God's chief competitor in your life is your money. Your heart sees money as a source of security, a provider of security. So if we're not careful, we're going to be tempted to put our trust and hope in it instead of trusting and hoping in the name of the Lord. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, wherever your treasure is there, the desires of your heart will also be. Jesus knows the way we approach money reveals the true condition of our heart, which is why he challenges us with our treasure. He knows if we're willing to give him our treasure, we're willing to inconvenience ourselves and be selfless for the needs of others, for the sake of the kingdom, our hearts will eventually follow wherever our treasure goes. 
And if the Holy Spirit doesn't convict us, if someone in life doesn't challenge us, our hope is naturally going to migrate toward the security that wealth brings. Or we're going to live insecure because we don't have enough of it. You'll never make the decision consciously. You may not even realize that it's happening to you, but your wealth or your lack of it will become your substitute for God. Knowing this, Jesus says in Matthew, that same Matthew 6 passage, verse 24 No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved by money. And that is the tension. Your heart is going to migrate to one or the other, and there is no middle ground. Listen to this wisdom from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verse 8. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. But give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. The writer of Proverbs understood that there is an amount of wealth that we can come to that if we're not careful, it will make us feel so comfortable and so secure that we will become self-sufficient and we will no longer depend on God. Our heart is going to gravitate away from God saying, Who is the Lord? We may never say it with our mouth, but we say it with the attitude and the actions of our heart. And most of us, when it's happening, we don't even know it's happening. We don't know what affluence is doing to us, that this affluence and materialism is driving this wedge between God and his purposes in our life and us. Paul is telling Timothy here in 1 Timothy 6, wealth can easily become a substitute for God. So, How are we supposed to know if that's happening to us? If our hearts, our hope is starting to migrate, how will we know? Let me just give you a little test. I'm going to give you two statements. They're very different statements, but I want you to ask yourself, be honest. This is not for anybody but you. This is not for your neighbor. It doesn't apply to anybody but you, and I'm not going to ask you to show me. I just want you to be honest in your own heart, because if you'll answer these honestly, it reveals for you maybe different than what you thought where your hope really rests. Which of these two statements create in you the greatest degree of anxiety? If suddenly you discovered that either one of these two statements were true, which one of them would cause you the greatest angst? Statement number one, there is no God. I mean, what if that was true? There would be no eternity, no afterlife. You just die and turn back to dust and that's it. Game over. No potential of reuniting with loved ones, nothing. It's like you never even existed. Life has no purpose, no greater meaning, absolutely nothing beyond this life. The end. What if that was true? Statement number two you have no money. You wake up tomorrow and for some reason it all vanished. Like the checking account, the savings account, the IRA. The change in the ashtray, that little thing that you've got stashed somewhere that is for rainy days and and, and it's gone too, like nothing left and you'll never get it back. It's all gone. Which one of those two statements created the greatest anxiety in you? Honestly, be honest with yourself. Because the honest answer to those statements will tell you where your hope really lies. If you're in the hospital and you're hooked up to all that stuff none of us ever want to be hooked up to, your heart is probably going to gravitate toward the God question. Or if you're like 
a family in our church this week that got some health news that reminded them how frail their life really is. It's in those moments that money becomes less important and the God thing becomes a priority. When we're faced with our own mortality or the mortality of somebody we love, our heart will start to shift away, migrate away from material things, and we'll start focusing on eternal things. We'll start asking questions like, is there a God? Am I really in relationship with him? What happens after this life? Where am I going to spend eternity? Will I see my loved ones again? Is there anybody waiting for me on the other side? When our time on earth is obviously short and we know it is running out quickly, the God issue becomes a priority. The pastor won't have to tell you that. Nobody in your family is going to have to convince you of that. When you're facing death head on, your heart is automatically going to migrate toward the God issue. Here's the point. If your heart is going to migrate toward grasping for God in the end, why not go ahead and put your hope in God in the middle? If you're going to trust him when you have no control over what happens at the end of life, why don't you just start trusting him while you have no control over what's going on in the middle of life? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run in him and are safe. But the wealth believe, the wealthy believe their wealth is a fortified city, an unscalable wall, but it's imaginary. Legend has it that while on his deathbed, Alexander the Great, the great conqueror, called in all of his generals, the lead generals, and gave his three final wishes, his death wishes. Wish number one, he told them, I want the best doctors to carry my body in the funeral possession. Wish number two, scatter my wealth on the road to my burial site, all the way down the road to where I'm buried, scatter my wealth. Wish number three, leave my hands hanging out. For everybody to see. His generals were astonished. And they asked for an explanation. And Alexander replied, I want my doctors to carry my body to show that even the best doctors are powerless in the face of death. I want the road scattered with my wealth so everybody can see that riches gained on earth will stay on earth. And I want my hands to hang freely so people can understand that we are born empty-handed and we will leave empty-handed. Which is why I asked Pastor Jason to sing that old song, I'd Rather Have Jesus. Because the God issue is the only issue that really matters. Don't let your hope migrate. Paul goes on to tell Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Listen to this, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. This is as important as anything else. God is the one who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The whole motivation of this sermon series, today's message is not guilt. Guilt never changed anybody. The motivation is gratitude. And when you understand he is the source of every good and perfect thing that happens in your life. He is the one providing those things for your enjoyment. So go ahead, upgrade your iPhone. Enjoy it. Trade the car, get a better car. Remodel the kitchen. Enjoy it. Just recognize the source of those blessings in your life is him. There's a lot of 
gentlemen, I'm sorry I didn't think through the elbows that just went in your ribs about remodeling the kitchen. I didn't, I didn't think that through. I do apologize for that. The point is, don't feel guilty about God's blessings in your life. Just don't let your hope migrate away from who has made that possible for you so that your heart is constantly filled with deep, deep gratitude. Don't let your hope migrate to stuff that is so uncertain, but keep your eyes on the source. Paul is teaching us this principle. Don't put your hope in the provision when you can put your hope in the provider. The provision's gonna run out of style, it's gonna run out, it's gonna go out, it's gonna get old, it's gonna get rusty, but the provider never will. Don't waste another day trying to amass this magic number crossing this imaginary line of dollars that is supposed to make you feel some sort of security. Because when you get to that number, it won't be enough. You still won't feel secure, and when you get to that line, they're going to have moved the goalpost, and you're going to have to start chasing another number, and you're always going to be traveling and never arriving, always searching and never finding. Our world and the culture will tell you to put your hope in provision, but Paul is telling us here to put our hope in the one who richly provides. So I want us to make that a declaration today. It is the bottom line of verse 17, and once we've come to terms with the fact we are affluent by global standards and we believe this declaration, it will change us. It will begin to heal us of our affluenza and we'll manage the assets in our life in a way that honors God, all right? Let me read it first and then I want us to declare it together. I will not place my hope in riches, but in him who richly provides. I want us to all make that declaration today and let's say it together out loud. Ready, go. I will not place my hope in riches, but in him who richly provides. Living by that is a game changer. It'll change your life. Because when you believe this, it's the cure for affluenza. And it will make you good at being blessed, affluent. If you believe this, God can keep putting stuff in your hands. Okay? He can keep blessing you. He can keep prospering you. And you will never clench your fist around the blessings of God. You'll always live your life with an open hand. Here's the summary. Don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope in wealth. Put your hope in God who richly provides. This is part of the affluenza antidote. Reorienting your perspective toward generosity taking intentional, practical steps to shift your perspective about money and the way you manage your time, your talent, and your treasure. 